All right, Daniel chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, turn there. It's passages like this today that make me question my long-held conviction that I should teach systematically through the Bible in this morning time, okay? And uh, pastors um, on Sunday morning speak to topics and subjects that are relevant for today. Andy Stanley, uh, for instance, preaches on relationships and generosity and happiness and purpose and a host of other topics, and he does so well. I, I, I do that some, but by and large, I made a commitment, you know, 30 plus years ago to, uh, to preach through books of the Bible so that we might all know what the Bible teaches. And plus, I believe the Bible, the Word of God, can make a difference in our life. But uh, sometimes, like in the text this morning, it makes me question that commitment. And, uh, and the reason for that is it's not so much the, the, the question of whether we should learn the Bible. We should all learn the Bible from cover to cover. I really believe that. But is this the best use of this time on Sunday morning to address uh, subjects like we're going to look at this morning? So, you know, whatever the answer to that rhetorical question is, uh, we're, we're still going to proceed with Daniel chapter 7. We've come to a, a turning point in the book of Daniel. If you've been with us for this entire study, the first six chapters have been narrative stories of Daniel's life. We have looked at different things. Some of the age-old favorite Bible stories that we've taught our kids uh, have been in chapters 1 through 6. With chapter 7, we have a, a turn in the book. And uh, in the last part, the last half of the book of Daniel, are going to be these strange visions, these dreams that Daniel has. It's called apocalyptic literature, in case you've never heard that, and apocalyptic literature refers to a genre of prophetical writings where the prophets will share these visions or these dreams that they've had. This started in post-exilic prophets, started with post-exilic prophets, you know, uh, well, maybe not even post-exilic, but, but related to before the, pro before the exile and, and then after the exile. They began to have dreams. I'm trying to remember the... The, I think it was Zechariah had lots of kind of pre-apocalyptic visions, right? But Daniel, the book of Daniel really is the, the coming to maturity of this whole apocalyptic kind of uh, literature and the dreams and visions that he records for us. Now, what apocalyptic literature is, it's these visions and these visions, these things that the prophets saw, they're meant to represent something else. They're meant to be a symbol of, of something different. Now you wonder, why didn't God just tell them straight out, right? right? Why in these visions, these pictures, do they have these things that are supposed to mean something else? Uh, lots of times these visions have to do with things that are going to transpire in the future. And they're often delivered by heavenly messengers. The difficulty becomes in, in interpreting apocalyptic literature, the, different, the difficulty comes into what does this picture, what does this symbol mean? What does it represent? What is God actually trying to say with, with that symbol? And, and so it becomes difficult, especially when we're literally hundreds and, and thousands of years removed from the time when the vision was first given. Now, I think that kind of makes it even more difficult, although in some cases it's going, to make it, it's going to make it simpler to understand what the vision, what the vision meant. I know none of this is satisfying my, my question, but uh, nonetheless, I, I just kind of wanted to give that as a, 
as almost a, a foundation for this talk to say that this is some of the most difficult literature to understand uh, in the scriptures, and we're going to take, but well, we're going to continue and press forward through this, uh, through the end of the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 1 reads, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed when he wrote the dream down and related it, related the following summary of it. So this is in the reign of Belshazzar, the king who saw the handwriting on the wall. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Micah taught us on, on that subject. So Daniel is around 80 years old when he sees the vision in chapter 7 that we're going to be studying. He's lying on his bed. Maybe he's asleep. I don't know. But he's lying down and he has this dream and he has this vision and after he wakes up or gets up he writes it down and notice that he says or it says that he gives us a summary of this vision that he had and, and we're going to actually see as we work through chapter 7 that towards the end he'll tell us things that he didn't tell us at the beginning so he's not telling us every detail of the vision he's just giving us a summary of it so what I would like to do this morning, I've thought long and hard about this. How do I make this applicable to us? How do I make this, especially since people disagree with, with some of the things that we're going to, to say today, how, how do we make this so that we can all agree? What, what is in, there in this vision for us today in 2018? And believe it or not, I came up with, I, I think, four lessons that sort of pop out of the vision for me that regardless of how you interpret this or how you interpret that, these four lessons, I think, apply to all of us. So hopefully, when I finish this morning, you'll be encouraged. There'll be something about what I said that's going to encourage you, challenge you, give you hope for the future. So I'm going to divide my talk into these four lessons. So let's begin with the first one. Here it is. The first lesson that I believe we find in this vision that Daniel's going to relate to us is this. Every earthly kingdom in the world, as it exists today, is temporary, and it will not last it will pass away, and it will give way to others that will come after it. Now that's, that's the first thing that I want you to see in this vision. And regardless of how you were to interpret the dream that Daniel has, what it's supposed to mean, I think there's a lesson here for us, and that is that all the earthly kingdoms of this world are temporary, and they are passing away. Let's read the, read the vision beginning in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the four great beasts and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man a human mind also was given to it and behold another beast a second one resembling a bear and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another beast, another one, came up out of the sea, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns while I was contemplating the horns behold another horn a little one came up amongst them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it and behold 
This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Now, if you're following along in your own Bible, you'll probably notice that verses 9 and 10 are a different typeset. I'm going to skip them, and I'm going to jump to verse 11. I'm going to skip the typesetted verses there. We'll come back to them in a little bit. But you'll notice that if you skip them, the progression of thought continues. Let me go back and read verse uh, 8, and then, or part of 8, and then I'm going to go into verse 11. And behold, this horn possesses eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So as this vision begins to unfold, almost every Bible scholar of any persuasion just everyone agrees with what the first part of this vision means or represented it. Represented. The great sea represented the vast sea of humanity. Out of, out of this vast sea of humanity came four kingdoms. The four beasts represented four empires that would arise out of the sea of people. And the first empire, of course, uh, was the lion with eagle's wings, and it represented the kingdom of Babylon. Well, again, most every scholar agrees that the four beasts are the same as the four metals. You remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2, uh, Daniel had been just a young boy, maybe 15, maybe in his 20s, and he had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream where the statue had a gold head, silver chest, bronze belly, and iron legs. You remember that? So everyone, everyone agrees that the four beasts coming up out of the sea of humanity represented these four empires that would arise. The lion with the eagle's wings was a symbol of the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, in excavations of Babylon, they have found many such things representing Nebuchadnezzar's rule and, and the kingdom of Babylon. When Daniel received this vision, he's now in his 80s. This is at the very end of the lion's kingdom. It's coming to an end really, really soon. One interesting thing in, in his description in this vision was that you remember Nebuchadnezzar in his seven years of insanity, how his hair turned in to look like, like uh, feathers? Well, in this vision, Daniel sees the wings of the eagle being clipped. Most everyone agrees with this as well, that it's representing Nebuchadnezzar himself. Let me read it again. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Most everyone agrees that it's alluding back to Nebuchadnezzar's time of insanity and his, his coming out of that. You may remember that Micah and I both commented in, in talks about Nebuchadnezzar that, that we were committed, or we were convinced, excuse me, that Nebuchadnezzar actually became a believer. I really, really believe that, that he became faithful to Yahweh. He became faithful to God. And, and I almost see in, in those verses not just a reference to his insanity being taken away and his sanity restored, but I almost see in, those, in that prophecy there, that vision that he saw where it says he was given two feet like a man and the human mind as maybe even reaching beyond that to talk about Nebuchadnezzar becoming like a man of God. That's just Jimmy, okay? That's just Jimmy's interpretation. But that, that's kind of what I saw in that. But regardless, everyone agrees that the lion with the wings is the Babylonian kingdom. 
The second is the bear. It was a formidable beast, strong and cruel, but it wasn't as majestic as the, as the lion. It symbolized the Medo-Persian empire in the chest of, gold, uh, chest of silver excuse me, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. Notice that in the prophecy, one side of the bear is bigger than the other. Right? He has one side that's lifted up. So in this bear, he's deformed. Right? But, but people re recognize that to be the uh, uh, Medo-Persian Empire because the Persian side of the Medo-Persian Empire was so much larger and greater than the Medo side. And so people see that there. The three, the three ribs in the mouth of the, of the bear, most people believe they represented Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia, the three nations or three empires that were conquered by the Medo-Persians. And so people saw the three ribs as representing that. But again, there's, there's very few scholars, there's no scholars, excuse me, there's no scholars that are of evangelical persuasion that believe the Bible to be God's word see it any other way than this. The leopard is the third uh, beast that comes up out of the sea following the first two. And, and this, this beast has four wings. And undoubtedly, the leopard with four wings represents an empire of speed. And, and again, everyone thinks that this is a very appropriate illustration of the Grecian Empire because Alexander the Great conquered the known world then in 12 years. It was, it was a formidable feat for him to do so in just so few years. And so everyone talks about, even today, in, in, in secular history, we talk about how rapidly the Grecian Empire grew. So the leopard, represented by four bird's wings, represents the speed by which Alexander would take over the world. The fact that the leopard had four heads, again, most everyone, all of, everyone agrees that the four heads represent the, the Grecian kingdom or Grecian empire and what would happen when Alexander would die. Alexander would not rule very long before he would die and the Grecian empire would be divided into four parts led by four of his generals. And so again, everyone sees in, in the leopard with four heads and four wings the, the rapidness by which Greece would conquer the world and its division under those four, four generals. Now let me stop there for just a second and just uh, just comment on the preciseness of this prophecy. As I commented before, this is so precise, it leads people who deny the supernatural aspect of, of God delivering us his word, doubt it. They say it couldn't have been written when it was written because it's absolutely too accurate to what happened in history. And so they push the date of Daniel back into the about past this, so that Daniel's actually, whoever's writing Daniel's looking back on it and, and putting this in there. Everybody follow me? However, there's all kinds of things, like I've told you before, that, that somebody in the future would not have known that Daniel actually puts in, in his book. The fourth beast, the fourth beast that Daniel saw is not compared to an earthly creature. It's described as terrifying and frightening, having powerful iron feet. And again, there's not a Bible scholar that doesn't agree that this beast corresponds to the Roman Empire. You remember the fourth, in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the legs were made of iron, and so people see this as the, as the Roman Empire. This beast uh, is a little bit different than the others as Daniel continues to watch. He sees that the beast has ten horns, and then even as he's watching, uh, another horn grows out, a smaller horn, rips out three horns, and this horn has eyes and a mouth and, uh, and, keeps, on, and keeps on boasting. And then the last beast is destroyed, 
and uh, he's burned with fire and is no more. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away from them, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I think verse 12 simply means this, that the previous three kingdoms, the, the, the lion that comes out of the sea, the bear that follows, and then the leper that follows, all of those kingdoms they're not destroyed and broken down into many parts. They are simply absorbed by a greater kingdom. And so after, after them, another kingdom will come over and take over them. And so for a season, they'll lose dominion, but for a season, they'll be as they were, just being ruled by a different empire and a greater empire. And I think that's what it means in verse 12, that as to the first, as to the first three, the rest of the beasts, their dominion, was, was given to them. I mean, their dominion was taken away, but they continued to exist for a while. I think that's what that means in the vision, okay? So let me just kind of pause here in the continuation of the vision and go back to talk about the lesson that I want you to see that I think all of us need to see. And the lesson is simply, again, this, and that is that the kingdoms of this earth are temporary. They're transitional. They come and they go. They may have had great power, but they get absorbed by somebody else. They may have risen to power with an amazing speed, but they don't last. The boundaries may have been extensive, but at some point, those boundaries are going to be dissolved, and those kingdoms will fall. None of them is going to last forever. Another more powerful, more hungry, more determined ruler is always waiting in the wings, always waiting to come and to take over that kingdom. No kingdom. No kingdom on earth will last. None has, and none will. And here's, here's what I want to say to us. The, the kingdom of the United States of America will not last. If Jesus tarries, uh, our, our, nation will, our nation will change. Its boundaries will change. You know, it, it, the, all the kingdoms and the rulers of this earth, they're temporary. So, so if, if there's an application of my first point, it would be simply this. I'd say to all of us, let's not live with our hope in any human kingdom. Let's not put our hope in any earthly kingdom. I mean, guys, Jesus made it so clear. He told Pilate, he said, if my kingdom was of this earth right now, I would, my followers would fight for it. But it's not of this world. This is not my kingdom. And what I want to say to you, don't put your hope in earthly powers or in earthly kingdoms. Don't put your hope in any earthly leader or any earthly nation. Second lesson from this vision. Here's the second one. Every, and I'm changing gears, okay? Uh, the first lesson is every earthly kingdom is temporary. Here's the second one from the vision. Every earthly kingdom will pass away, but God sits in heaven and has given to Jesus the power to rule. He's given him dominion and glory and honor and a kingdom that will never end, which will last for an eternity. I think that's the second lesson of this vision. Let's continue on, but I want to look at verses 9 and 10 and 13 and 14. Okay, let me read them together. I'm not going to pause between 10 and 13. I want you to notice how they flow together. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. 
His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, the books were open, and I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, that is to the Ancient of Days, I mean, excuse me, to the, to the Son of Man was given, given dominion, glory, and kingdom, they, that all the peoples and nations and men of every tr- language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, if you're reading in your Bible and you're following along with me, you will notice, I already pointed this out, that the typeset in those verses is different than the typeset in the rest of Daniel. In Daniel's text, these verses are written in poetic prose. They're written different than the rest of the book of Daniel, the rest of chapter 7. They're written differently. Everyone acknowledges that. Everyone recognizes that. Most scholars believe, as do I, that they are written that way to set them apart from the other things that are written in Daniel chapter 7 so that the reader might see them as differently, that the reader might see them as a parenthesis in the vision. So it seems to me that even as Daniel is seeing the one vision of the beast coming up out of the oceans or out of the, out of the seas, he's also seeing this other vision, maybe simultaneously, maybe after that. I'm not sure which, right? But he's seeing this other vision. The, the timing of the second vision is not noted for us. But I believe it's meant, now listen, I believe it's meant to contrast the temporalness and the fragility of men's earthly kingdoms. And so what God is doing for Daniel and what God is doing for us this morning is he's telling us in a parenthesis all the kingdoms of this earth are temporary but not the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. This parenthesis that Daniel sees is God saying that the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne and he is sovereign over all creation. Remember the word sovereign means king. He's Lord. He's king. He's the ruler of his creation. Now in the vision that Daniel sees in the parentheses, notice that God is shrouded in white and fire, symbolizing, I imagine, I speculate, his purity and his power. He's being served by myriads and myriads, and he's standing in a courtroom. And then Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds and presented to the Ancient of Days. Again, I want to read it, verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You may remember, if you've grown up in the church and you've been a Bible student for many years, you may remember that one of the favorite expressions that Jesus would take for himself was that I am the Son of Man. You remember him saying that? He'd say it often. I am the Son of Man. Here's what, Dan, here's what Jesus was doing. Don't miss it. See, I'm going to teach you something. When Jesus said, I am the, the Son of Man has come, he was making claim to being the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. He wasn't just making up a term. He was claiming to be the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7. The one to whom, the one who was presented to God and who, who, who would receive a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, whose dominion and power would be forever and ever. 
Now, some believe this vision is yet to happen, that God will give to Jesus the eternal kingdom on his return. My own thought is that this has already happened when Jesus presented to himself to God at the ascension. When Jesus left in the clouds, Acts chapter 1, you notice in the text here in Daniel, he rolls in before the Ancient of Days on the clouds. I believe that the fulfillment of this parentheses vision happened at the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection. He's presented to the Father. Now think about this for just a moment. The Son, now incarnate, a new glorified body risen from the dead is now presented to the Ancient of Days. He's now presented to the Father. And that's what I believe we saw, we see, and I believe we saw that already. But regardless of its timing, the message of this vision is clear and it's compelling and it's encouraging. And it's this, God is always on his throne and he's given to Jesus, the God-man, the kingdom of earth, and he will rule forever and ever and all power is his and all people are his and all glory is his. And that is the message of the parentheses. Regardless of when it happens, all the earthly kingdoms of this world are temporary and passing away, but Jesus' kingdom is for real and it's forever. And I'm a part of it, even now. Jesus is my king and I am a part of his kingdom now. You remember Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in heaven and on earth. Abraham Kuyper, prime minister of the Netherlands at the turn of the 20th century said, and I quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Isn't that great? And I think that's the message of the parentheses and regardless of when you think Jesus rolls in before the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom in its dominion forever. Whether you think it's future or whether you think it already happened at the ascension of Jesus or some other time, the message is clear and it's the point that I want you to be encouraged with. Jesus is Lord and his kingdom will never come to end. And it has all, he has all dominion and all power. His kingdom is forever. Now, the message, that, that's the message of the vision. That brings us to the second part of Daniel chapter 7. And here's where we're going to find a lot of disagreement, and that's okay, because I've got two lessons from the second part that I think we'll all agree on, all right? So let's continue on in our study. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming, kept alarming me. And again, I think that would point to the difference in the parentheses as one vision, and at the same time you have this other vision of the beast coming out of the seas. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me, and, I made no, and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now, like the revelation, John's revelation, Daniel's revelation is, uh, is interactive. There's the angel of God there. So he, remember, John talks to the angels who are revealing this vision to him, and so does Daniel. So he finds himself distressed by what he's seen, and he asks for clarification. And so the messenger in verse 17 says, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So in a very succinct way, the messenger says, hey, the four beasts are four kings. Actually, they're not kings. They're, they're four kingdoms. So we need to equate kings with kingdoms. But it's God's people who will, who will receive and possess a kingdom that is eternal, that will never pass away. 
The kingdoms of this world are passing. They're temporal, they're fragile. But we will receive a kingdom in the future that is not, or have received a kingdom already that is not passing away. But Daniel's not satisfied with that, and he wants to know more. In other words, the messenger just said what I've said to you. He basically said the four, the four beasts or four kings, kingdoms coming up out of the sea, and, and, and yet, hey, this vision tells us that the, the kingdom of God is forever. That's basically what he said. Daniel's not satisfied. So he's going to ask more. But before he does, let me, let me tell you what my third lesson or third reality out of this vision for us is this. It's this. The saints of God will never have dominion over the kingdom of this world until the time appointed for that end by God himself. And in fact, until that time, we will often be overpowered and worn down and persecuted and martyred and killed. We know from, this is still part of my point, we know from the rest of the Bible that day when we shall inherit the earth is the day that Jesus returns. So I know it's a mouthful, and I think it's on the screen. It is, but I'm, I'm going to read it again. The, the saints of God will never have dominion over the kingdom of this world until the time appointed for that end by God himself. In fact, until that time, we will often be overpowered, worn down, persecuted. And we know from the rest of the Bible that the day when we shall inherit the earth is the day when Jesus returns. Now let's look at the vision. Look at verse 19. Then I, desired, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze. Now we just learned something new. He hadn't told us that. Which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before the, which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and mouths uttering great boast and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now, Daniel wants to know about the last beast. He says, man, this last beast is different. I, I want to know about the ten horns. I really want to know about the little horn. Who, and, he's, and he notes three things here, that, uh, or a couple of things here, that the horn is doing. This little horn is waging war against God's people and overpowering them and destroying them. And that's going to happen until the Ancient of Days says enough is enough and puts an end to it. So the messenger now answers Daniel, verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. We've already established that. It's the Roman Empire, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. The Roman Empire really did overtake most of, if not the whole known world at the time. As for the ten horns, now he continues, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. So the little horn is, the little, is another kingdom that will rise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones. And he'll subdue three kings, and he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Most High, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in, and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So the fourth beast of the kingdom will be greater than the other three. Do you see that? That's what, the, that's what the angel, the messenger, says to Daniel. He will be exceedingly strong, and his territory will be exceedingly great. He will devour the whole earth, covering most of the known world at that time. 
The ten horns, he says, represent ten kings or ten kingdoms that will arise from the Roman Empire's fall. In other words, another kingdom will not overtake them as we saw in the previous three beasts. Instead, Rome will collapse into many smaller kingdoms. Out of that destruction will come yet another king or a kingdom that is different from all the rest. And this one will speak out against God, blaspheming God, waging war against the saints of God, and, and even intent on changing laws and times. And the saints of God will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. What does that mean? Before I go on and, and, and talk about some other things, let me talk about that for just a moment. How long is a time, times, and half a time? That, you know, a lot of folks say, well, that's literally three and a half years. And the reason they would say that is because in the book of Revelation, uh, we've actually got 42 months and 1,260 days attached to a time, times, and, and half a time. And so some people have interpreted that to be literally three and a half years. So three and a half years, the saints will be persecuted by this, this, little, this kingdom of the little horn. Uh, many, uh, many, however, have interpreted differently. For instance, the reformers, and again, I, I don't agree with their interpretation, but the reformers interpreted each of those days to be a year. And since it's 1,260 days, the reformer said, the little horn will persecute the church for 1,260 years. But they didn't do that all the time. They only did it where they wanted to, right? And so they only interpreted things that way where they wanted to. And so, you know, I don't buy that one either. Uh, still another interpretation is that times and time, time and times and half a time is three and a half years. It's half the number of, uh, of perfection, which is seven. And so some people have suggested that it's not meant to be a literal three and a half years, but it's meant to represent an imperfect time, a time of persecution against the church, however, against God's people, however long that lasts. Now, in this part of the vision, talking about the beast horns, we have two very different understandings of what they meant. The who, what of the ten horns and the who, what of the little horn is very different. And I've got to be honest with you, I prayed and deliberated about how to do this because I don't want to get in the weeds I don't want to just go off and, you know, and just, it's going, I don't want to confuse you, but I felt like I had to give you, there, there are basically two main understandings of the ten horns and the little horn. So I'm going to give them both to you, and, and you'll just have to do further research if you care to about, about what, these things, what these things represented. But again, don't forget the lesson that I want you to see. The lesson is that God's people are subject to persecution until God says enough is enough. But, let's, but let's, here's the two interpreters. Here's the first one. All the early church fathers and all the reformers of the 1600s held that the ten horns would be ten kingdoms. And again, some people said literally ten. Other people said ten just represents however many the Roman Empire would break into. But that the Roman Empire would break into ten separate kingdoms after it fell. Those groups would be, now looking back on it, those groups would be the Visigoths, the Vandals, the Angles, the Saxons, the Franks, the Ossogoths, the Lombards, who, who in turn ravaged the empire, but eventually carved the Roman Empire into different parts, each taking a part. So for instance, the Angles and the Saxons populated the British Isles, the Franks populated France. And so the early church fathers and the reformers all said that the Ten Horns would be the dissolution of the Roman Empire into those ten nations. And so they also said that the little horn would rise up out of that dissolving Roman Empire. Now, I hate to say too much about this, but I'm going to nonetheless. All the reformers, from Luther to Calvin to William Tyndale, 
They all believed that the little horn was the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, some of you maybe are Catholic that are here visiting with us. Maybe, maybe you, are, uh, you came out of that background. I don't want you to hear more than what I'm saying, but I do want you to understand that the Reformers all saw the fulfillment of the little horn as being in the papacy. Out of the fall of the Roman Empire came the power of the papacy, which really was a kingdom to itself. It actually began to come into power, but didn't consolidate power until the 600s, the early 600s, with the dissolving of the Roman Empire. It was said of the popes that they wielded far more power than any of the rulers of the nations that followed Rome. There was three things the little horn was going to do. It was going to blaspheme God, it was going to persecute the saints, and it was going to change or attempt to change laws and times. So the, the folks who see the ten horns as the dissolution of Rome and, and the, the little horn rising up out of that who thought it was the papacy, here, here's what they suggested when it came to the blasphemous words of the little horn. Listen to some of the some of the things the papacy has said. This is Pope Innocent III. We may, according to the fullness of our power, dispose of the law and dispense above the law. Those whom the Pope of Rome does separate, it is not a man that separates them, but God. For the Pope holds the place on earth not simply of a man, but of the true God. Pope Pius XI said, You know that I am the Holy Father, the representative of God, which means I am God on the earth. Pope Leo VIII said, we hold the place of Almighty God on earth. And there are quote after quote after quote that we would consider blasphemous, taking the place of God. The papacy was responsible for the slaughter and the killing of God's people for centuries. Once the papacy came to power, anyone who opposed, anyone who didn't submit to the pope would, would be killed. Uh, prior to the Reformation and after the Reformation. What's really sad is the Reformers followed suit. They also did like the papacy and put to death people who didn't agree with them. The number has been thrown out that the papacy killed 50 million Christians, 50 million followers of Christ, but that number has been soundly refuted, I believe. The, the real number is probably reads in the hundreds of thousands of Christians that were either put to death, martyred, or imprisoned for their faith in Jesus and when it comes to the changing of times, here is Pope Nicholas. And I want to just listen to the quote, and, uh, and so I'll let him speak for himself. I quote, I have the authority of the King of Kings. I am all in all and above all. I am able to do almost all that God can do. Whatever, wherefore, if those things that I do be said not to be done of men but of God, what can you make of me but God? Wherefore, no marvel if... It, wherefore, no marvel... If it be in my power to change time and times and to alter and abrogate laws, to dispense with all things, yea, with the precepts of Christ. For where Christ did bid Peter not to put on his sword and admonish his disciples not to use any outward force in defending themselves, so did not I, Pope Nicholas, writing to the bishops of France, exhort them to draw out their material sword. Wherefore, as I began, so I conclude, commanding and declaring and pronouncing to stand upon the necessity of salvation for every creature, he must be subject to me. So it seems like Pope Nicholas was, in, was attempting to say that he is the little horn. Not sure why he would attempt to do that, but, uh, but he did Nonetheless, and this was the majority view of the church until the middle of the 19th century. 
Now the second understanding of the ten horns and the little horn is probably more familiar to you, and it won't take as long uh, for me to discuss this one, but it's, uh, it's simply that the, the understanding is the ten horns are believed to be a revised Roman Empire that comes in the future. Uh, at this point, we're 1,500 years after the fall of Rome, but at some point in the future, uh, the Roman Empire is going to reconstitute itself as a ten-nation uh, conglomerate. For years, when I was young, it was said to be the European Common Union was the new renewed Roman Empire, but that has come and gone. But the, the belief that the renewed Roman Empire will arise in the future is coming. And the little horn, then, since it's arising after the, after the ten horns, it, uh, it will arise after the consolidation of these ten horns. And so the little horn is believed, commonly to believe, a man who will come forth and he will identify himself as being the Antichrist that, uh, that we hear an awful lot about in, in our world. And uh, it'll come about at the end of time, at some point prior to the return of Christ, just prior to the return of Christ, the ten horn conglomerate will come together and out of that ten horn conglomerate will come a little horn and that little horn will be uh, what is commonly referred to by folks as, as uh, the Antichrist. Now, let me say this, setting aside the identification of who the little horn would be, whether it be the papacy or some person that's coming in the future or somebody else or something else, uh, they, they can't all be right. They can't all be right. And because, because apocalyptic literature is so difficult to understand, we, met, we must hold our positions with grace. We must hold our positions tentatively, you know, but with grace towards others who disagree with us on that. However, now here's my point. What we can all agree on, regardless of how we see the ten horns and, and, and the little horn, what we can all agree on is what the vision says, and that is that God's people have been, still are, and will be persecuted, worn down, and killed until God says, enough is enough. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, listen to what John writes. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, uh, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been killed, would be completed also. We shouldn't think it a strange thing. Here's, here's the point of the vision that I want all of us to understand. We shouldn't think it a strange thing when God's people are destroyed, abused, persecuted, and killed, imprisoned, and mistreated. We shouldn't think that a strange thing because it's what's predicted in the vision, that this is what's going to happen to God's people until God says enough is enough. Now let me deviate just a second for an application for us. And here's my application for us on this particular truth, and it would be this. We live in such an affluent, free society and culture. Let us not forget our brothers and sisters. Let us not forget those who are even this day imprisoned for their faith. Let's not forget our brothers and sisters who are laying down their lives for their faith in Christ. You know, he, listen to Hebrews 13.3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, 
and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Now, can I tell you, when you read that through a Western lens, here's what you're saying. Don't forget the people who are in prison for burglary and for murder and all that kind of stuff. Don't forget about the prisoners in prison. And I, and I don't think we should forget about them. But that is not what this means. This means don't forget your brothers and sisters who are in prison for their faith. Don't forget them. And you, you be like one of them who's there. How would you want to be treated if you're a prisoner somewhere for your faith? Wouldn't you want your brothers and sisters to not forget you, to pray for you, to provide for you? Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those who is right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will say, Lord, when did we do that? I read that simply to say, when he says, I was in prison, and you visited me, Again, he's, he's, talking about, he's talking about our brothers and sisters who are in prison for their faith. And my application would be of this third point is, I mean, it's a reality, guys. The body of Christ is going to be persecuted until the Father, the Ancient of Days, says it's time. We're going to be worn down. We're going to be killed. We're going to be destroyed. I mean, we, we, we live in a bubble. We live in an anomaly in America, but it's not true of his greater church, and we should not forget. And the last point, and I'm, I'm almost done, so hang in there with me emotionally. Here's my last point. Finally, we the people of God will one day rule and reign with Jesus forever. Look at verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion, the little horn's dominion, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. And then this concluding verse by Daniel, at this point the revelation ended, and as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarmed, were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Now, in the throne room of heaven, where the Ancient of Days is seated, the Ancient of Days says, it is time. It is time. And, and the dominion and the kingdom of the little horn and all it represents will be destroyed, eradicated, annihilated, and it'll be no more. And instead, the kingdoms of the world will be given to the kingdoms of the, will be given to the saints of God. And there can be no doubt that what Daniel saw here at the end is the victory that Jesus will have at his return, where, where he brings his kingdom back to earth and destroys all of his enemies. It's talking about, I believe, the resurrection from the dead of all the saints who will be given immortality to reign with him forever and ever. I sent a tweet, I sent a tweet, I sent a, a text out to my, my brothers and my mother this morning about my dad, and I said, I'm missing dad today, I'm missing dad, my first Father's Day without him, I'm missing him, and I said, but you know, I have hope, I have hope that at the resurrection from the dead, God is going to raise my father back to life, and he and I will spend eternity reigning with Christ not reigning for Christ, reigning with Christ. And it's not like I'm going to reign over you and you're going to reign over me or we're going to reign over George and George is going to reign over Al. No, we're going to reign with Christ over this world. 
I mean, all of God's people will inherit the earth and will inherit this world that's been renewed and restored and all sin eradicated. And we will reign and rule over the world together with Christ as our king. That's the promise of the last part of this vision. However you think it's going to turn out, however it's going to culminate, that's the point of the vision. And that should encourage every one of us. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.12, he said, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to, listen, you have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. Then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of the street. And on either side the river of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no longer any curse in the throne of God, and the Lamb will be on it. The bondservants will serve with him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead, and they will no longer, there will no longer be a night, and they will no longer have need of light or of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And that is the fourth lesson of the vision of Daniel. We will be a part of a renewed creation, perfected by God and ruled by Jesus, and we will rule with them. And I look forward to it. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.